came to realize that what started out as a natural disaster became a man-made disaster. We cannot control the natural disaster, but what we can do is control our response. Have you ever wondered whether disasters are actually natural? If so, you're in the right place. Hello and welcome. My name is Jason von Medding. And I am Xenia Chmutina. This is Disasters Deconstructed, a podcast where we examine why disasters really happen. Thank you for tuning in. Okay, welcome everybody back to season five of Disasters Deconstructed podcast. Hooray, season five. Hi, Jason. Hey. Yeah, it's um, so cool to be back again. We've had a little bit of a break, but we've been busy, right? <laughs> yeah, the break or breakdown, I'm not sure. Um, <laughs> it, it, feel, it feels like we haven't recorded for ages, but it's only been a couple of months. Um, and this season's going to be the most exciting yet. All our seasons are exciting, but I'm really looking forward to this one. A bit of a different schedule this season, because I think... Mm-hmm. Uh, when we started the podcast, we really had ambitions to buy, like release every week, and maybe we overestimated the amount of energy and um, time that was required for that kind of a schedule. I think other people tried to tell us that we were crazy, right? That maybe we didn't really listen. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I thought we, um, we kind of yeah, we didn't listen. We thought we could do it all. Yeah, so we kind of went to fewer episodes per season over the next few seasons and then (laughs) we have a new strategy for this season right (laughs) so we will be releasing um an episode every two weeks the episodes will be slightly longer um but great nevertheless and you hopefully have a little bit more time to enjoy them so we'll be releasing every two weeks hopefully that's not going to disappoint you all who are expecting a weekly release (laughs) but um I think it'll save us some sanity and um, we'll see what the future holds afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure we will be back with a lot of enthusiasm uh, when we finish or s- finish this academic year, start next, next academic year and just... Well, I think, I think that's what academics say for every year. It's always going to get better, right? Yeah, yeah. Next week, I'm going to have so much free time. But anyway... <laughs> anyway, well, whilst all of you have been waiting for season five well as you know we've been doing some other exciting things i hope you all enjoyed the two special episodes on children and youth and their reflections on their covid experiences and these were great and we released them a month ago and also we hope you joined us for the live stream uh, where we discussed the post-disaster research um, in the context of the power prestige and forgotten values manifesto there will be a second part um, of that live stream coming out in september uh, where we will be discussing post-disaster research with early career researchers uh, from different countries and also just to mention a couple more um, live streams coming up where we are going to have the book club live stream um which has been delayed a few times because of my lack of timeliness and reading <laughs> so, so, i'm so sorry everybody i love your honesty we have another live stream coming up in august 
um, that's following on from the Children and Youth Project. And we're going to bring together a number of people involved in that project for a live stream, which should be pretty exciting. And also in October, we will be marking the um, International Day for Disaster Risk Reduction. And we have something very, very special planned. So watch this space. So cool. Loads of things to look forward to. Well, on that, shall we stop talking about the season and actually get on with the season? So in this season, as you've already probably figured out, we're going to talk about disasters. Um, you know, not that we haven't talked about disasters before, that's all we really talk about. But actually, we want to discuss with our guests what disasters are and what approaches we could and should adopt to think about disasters in a way that actually helps us realize how disaster risks um, are created and also how the disaster risks could be resisted. And to open this season with us today, we've invited Dr. David Pravat, who's an associate professor at the Department of Civil and Coastal Engineering at the University of Florida. His research develops engineering solutions to reduce wind damage to buildings from tornadoes and hurricanes. Welcome, David. Good morning. Thank you so much for having me, Jason and Kisnia. Um, this has been a long time coming and I've been looking forward to it. Yeah, it really has. We we talked about, um, I think, having you on like back in season two or three. So <laughs> I'm glad we've made it happen now. And um, <laughs> yeah, I've really in, enjoyed getting to know you and work with you at since I moved to UF. Um, and like the thing that's, that stands out is just the the fact that you're um, an engineer who has a really kind of really great understanding of the social dimension of disasters. And I know when, on this show, we've talked before about sometimes how that's missing when we um, work and collaborate with, with, with engineering partners on projects. And it's, it's kind of a, a topic of discussion in disaster research. So I really appreciate that about you, David. And thanks for being on here with us today. And to start off, I wanted to ask you, about what got you interested in hurricanes and tornadoes in the first place? Okay, well, it, it started off because I lived on an island, Trinidad. And, mm. um, so it's, it's kind of a simple story. I live close to the sea. The sea is just my happy place. Um, I developed an interest in sailing, um, windsurfing, and then hurricanes. It's just a natural <laughs> progression. Um, the, <laughs> I'm sure you see it already. But essentially, the UE, as sailors, we use the wind to move uh, a, you know, something that we've built in any particular direction, at any particular speed we feel comfortable, and we have to know things. And the wind has this incredible power, right? Mm. It's, but it also has a, a power for good. I mean, you know, you put up your spinnaker, you get on a, a, you know, a broad reach, you start the plane, the boat starts to swing, your n <laughs> nerves just get going and you're loving it, right? Yeah. But if you're, you know, you let that power get out of control, the spinnaker, what wraps into an hourglass shape, it goes along the bow, it pulls the boat over, and mm. you think you're going to die. <laughs> um, so that's what the wind is. It has a powerful good. And then hurricanes shows you it really has a power uh, to destroy mm. complete neighborhoods, everything in 
its path. But the wind is agnostic whether we're going to sail on a Sunday or whether we're going to destroy the Bahamas. Mm. It's agnostic to this. Um, as, as, as humans, we choose what we do with the wind and we choose how we prepare for the wind. Right. Okay. So while I'm sailing, I do a lot of preparation and, you know, I check my sails to make sure they're not dry rotted. I check the boat to make sure it's not leaking. I check the centerboard to make sure it's well attached. Um, and then I go out. I'm prepared for the strength of the wind. And it's the same thing that engineers try to or ought to be doing with houses and buildings. We need to prepare our houses, buildings, and communities for that wind um, that we know is going to come uh, in order f- for it to ride out the hurricane in an intact uh, situation. Mm. Wow, that's such, that's such a great um, introduction to the show, and I really appreciate those um, kind of visual examples. It's, it's fantastic. And I just wanted to ask, like, what does this um, preparation look like in the Caribbean? Okay, so uh, the, the thing in the Caribbean is, which is different from a continental place, and particularly, let's take the example of where we are here, uh, Jason, in, in Gainesville, Florida. Mm. Okay, so we're uh, kind of, to give anyone an idea, Mickey Mouse lives about a how. 90 minutes south of us, right, of Orlando. So we're not really in the the very bad parts of the state when it comes to very high winds, and we're in the middle of the state. But what we have, we have I-95 on the one hand and I-75 on the other hand. Um, These are the west, east and west coast, uh, uh, north-south highways. Uh, So when uh, a, a... Hurricane is lined up and we have forecasted out about a week in advance. We can tell lots of people to uh, evacuate. Hmm. The difference with the Bahamas, uh, St. Lucia, Trinidad, Tobago, any other island is that, you know, we don't have an interstate and we can't go anywhere. We are an island surrounded hmm. by water. Hmm. And so therefore the the preparation has to look a little differently. You have to be uh, prepared to stay to to batten down the hatches, if mm. you will, and to protect your life and limb during the the hurricane itself and also after the hurricane itself. Mm. Okay, the difference, uh, you know, a lot of us in the United States we don't realize how uh, it. It is to be in such a large uh, community. Right? If I have a hurricane which hits us in, say, Hurricane Michael in the Panhandle, I can literally, within uh, literally less than an hour's drive, there are three or four different states in which resources, utilities can come in temporarily yeah. to help me out. Okay. Um, the difference we saw was with uh, uh, Puerto Rico, with Hurricane uh, Maria in 2017, how much longer it took to get uh, emergency supplies to come in and how much more difficult was the recovery simply because 
it was an island. Mm -hmm. And so when you are an, an island, you have to prepare for a little bit uh, longer uh, being on your own. And then there's the other consideration. Instead of us being on an island which is connected to a large continental uh, a rest of the world like Puerto Rico or the U.S. Virgin Islands, let's put on the independence of every Caribbean island now, mm -hmm. right? Every Caribbean island, say like Dominica, very small, but it has its own bicameral uh, parliamentary system, its prime ministers and governor generals and all this sort of thing. They rely upon themselves. Mm. Okay. How do you self-insure that you will survive hurricanes um, when, you know, you can't call on uh, a brother or sister communities uh, to come in and bring those resources that you that mm. would need? Okay. So, I, you know, some of the, the uh, emphasis for those small island communities that are now independent and which are smaller than the sizes sometimes of the, the, the immediate uh, rain and wind bands around a hurricane, you have to prepare yourself to be, uh, you know, inundated completely by the most extreme wind in the hurricane, mm. which can affect from north to south, east to west of your community. Mm. How do you do that? Mm. Right? Um, so yeah. therefore, the, the notion that we can simply use the standards that we have, say, in Florida or in some sort of larger continental thing, maybe we might have to rethink that. Mm. Hasn't really happened yet, but this is something that I think in the future uh, small independent island nations will certainly have to discuss and make decisions upon. Very often, what we see with engineering education and practice, you know, in particular in kind of disaster risk reduction, is that the education focuses on hazards as a problem, and I use problem in quotation marks, sure. and that is the problem that is posed by nature, right? And therefore, this problem can be solved, again, solved in quotation marks, uh, through a technical solution. Mm -hmm. And so those who build our cities um, very often do not even see the difference between a hazard and a disaster, you know, and I'm sure we all had those conversations. Um, and there is also very little appreciation that those technical solutions, right, in quotation marks, are not necessarily a panacea for disaster risk reduction. And in fact, disasters are very political. Um, we need to think about social implications of these disaster risk reduction solutions, right? And if they're not contextualized, then actually we can create more harm than good. But you yeah. are an exception, it seems to me. Uh, you know, following your work, and of course we've, we've written together, and also following your commentary on uh, social media on Twitter, which uh, amuses me greatly. It's great. Uh, <laughs> your, your Twitter is fantastic. <laughs> um, it's pretty clear to me that you know you you don't treat um, disaster risk reduction from the technical perspective, and you you know you're arguing that whilst 
building codes are important, that planning policies are and design strategies are important. We also need a plan for achieving equity and establishing basic rights and access for all. So how did you come to this? How did you turn to this kind of engineer for justice and equity? I spoke to one Jason von Metting, I think. That was that was it. That's all you need to do. You speak to Jason uh, and, and he changes your complete look outlook on life. He makes you want to redo your profession, go back to school. Lots of things happen. Oh, First it. time I met Jason. <laughs> but but it is true. What one of the things I I tell people, you know, we have to well, firstly, I would say this, that, that engineers, our education is somewhat short-sighted. Not somewhat, it is short-sighted in terms of uh, thinking that uh, we can be, you know, some sort of knights on the white horse riding into town, clop-de-clop-clop-de-clop, I'm here to save the day, I'm here to save the day. <laughs> no, we are not. We are merely a part of the communities, okay? Uh, and, and it has slowly dawned on me that the problems we are most able to fix, you know, pr- problems, again, in quotation marks, are those uh, that are commonly owned by communities. The, the building, mm-hmm. the, sorry, the bridges, the roads, the utilities, you know, these sort of grand things that, you know, there is a municipal sort of over, uh, you know, manager who says what to do and so on and so forth. The more, those are the low hanging fruit. The more difficult ones, uh, things that are, that fall in that gray area of private uh, property, the houses. You know, if we have not yet felt it that housing rises to the level that uh, an engineer should deign to spend time on uh, to solve this problem. We just think, well, houses are not supposed to be as solid as uh, maybe uh, uh, an Amazon warehouse because there's no value to the house, right? Um, now, maybe I'm speaking a little bit facetiously, but uh, the, the context here is this, that commercial entities may have value that somebody can see and, and, and provide for. Right. And commercial entities want to make sure that the roads are good so that they can get their goods in and the bridges are good and that the Internet is always on and so on and so forth. But there's no sort of commercial value to the house, except that's where we all live. Right. Mm-hmm. So, so that there in lies the rub whereby we, the workers who actually do things in those factories, in those office buildings and so on we live in in places where and and most people may not realize this but there's two building code standards in this country one for residential structures and one for commercial structures and in some cases you might find that the, the residential standard is not as rigid as the commercial standard Okay, so these these are some of the, the equity things 
Now, let me throw out something else that is even larger and even more uh, historically appropriate. If I looked at the entire Caribbean islands, but not from a point of view of the last 200 or 400 years, but for real history, 8,000 years, if we look back, way back into history, we would see that the Caribbean was always a place for vacation time, right? Mm-hmm. There was never, uh, from, you know, the Taino people in, in Puerto Rico, Cuba, and other islands, there was never a sort of, you know, an organized society to the sense that, you know, you would see in, uh, you know, uh, Mesoamerica, in, in Mexico, and so on, where you have 50 million people and so on. You know, there's always just sort of like a, a smattering of people, uh, rather modest sort of um, social structures that remain, etc., etc. Et and, you know, let's think about this. Why is that? A human being 8,000 years ago could read the tea leaves and say, hey, dude, hurricanes happen every year. You know, one of these years you're going to get hit. So why build a whole bunch of stuff here when, you know, you know you can be safer uh, back on the mainland? So the only reason to come to the Caribbean was, well, somebody must be chasing you. You know, you run, you stole somebody's, I don't know, gold or something, and you take a canoe and you come over here. But after two or three years, you know, your family's grown up again, you just go back home, right? The Caribbean was formed by people who never thought that they wanted to live here. It was just a place where we could, uh, how I say, uh, rape the resources from this place and put it into nice banks and buy good art, mm. you know, um, that's all it was. And then what? We decimate the people who live here, and we import more people to farm or to cut or to, you know, whatever they did. Um, but we did we ever reinvest in the Caribbean? Did we ever have a concept that we wish to form a society with the structure and the strength of the Paris or London or Amsterdam or, or you name it, right? But we used a whole ton of money from the Medici Bank in Florence. We built up these nice communities here. We loaned people money for ships and so on and so forth. And with that triangular trade, we got everything and we banked it back in Paris and London. So and now that we get to the 20th century and we decide, ah, this is a bother. This is a bother. Why bother? Okay, independence for everyone. Level playing field. You're on your own. Have at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so what do you want people to do? Now that we have, you know, formerly enslaved Africans and, and indentured servants from India and China and everybody is living here and so on and so forth, and these, these hurricanes... They're just the way the world breathes. It inhales and it exhales. It takes temperature from one place and shifts it to another place. It's been doing that for millennia. But now we have these humans. These humans are here and all of a sudden these humans are like, what hit us? Oh, it's a hurricane. Hurricane mm. called it, you know? But you could have asked those, uh, 
Tayano people 400 years ago. Columbus could have said, you know, what happens here? But we chose to ignore the facts on the ground and still don't. Um, and so now we're stuck with a problem that we're trying to solve and we're trying to uh, push the blame or, or the solution for this on the people who were imported there four or five hundred years ago um, mm -hmm. and left with no resources to to repair what they're doing. Okay? So mm -hmm. now that's a rather extreme example, but it is a real one. The same thing occurs where we whereby if we look at people who live in Tornado Alley in, in the Midwest, uh, you know, uh, Oklahoma and so on, we have people who just living in a community that has had her tornadoes every year for as long as the United States is as, as it is. 1,200 tornadoes can happen every year on average. Um, but yet we never chose to have a building code specifically designed to reduce the losses from tornadoes. Hmm. For the last 50 years since a tornado in Lubbock, Texas, where the Texas Tech researchers did, uh, you know, groundbreaking studies to understand and to, uh, you know, measure as best they could what damage occurs, what wind speed at which it occurred, and so on and so forth. We've known what happens in tornadoes. We've known how, what are the weaknesses in the housing. We've known how to make houses stronger. We've chosen not to do anything about it. Yeah. So, you know, uh, and again, th this is, is, is really important for us to realize. When I say we, it is a collective we. It is not we engineers or we home builders or we, it is the entire population writ large mm. that must make the decisions for what level of risks we are willing to live by. And we're willing to live by very high levels of risks because of other factors, because there's an economic uh, place for profit mm -hmm. that sometimes, uh, you know, it trumps the level of risk in which we put millions of people. You know, David, um, as you've been talking about this, I, I started thinking immediately about Sir Hilary Beckel's work on reparations um, and, you know, mm -hmm. him really calling for uh, UK in particular um, to, to pay reparations. And yet this narrative is somehow completely ignored, particularly in the UK, because um, as you said, you know, oh, you've got the independence, what else can you possibly want, right? <laughs> and the, that mm -hmm. risk creation um, that was there for centuries uh, through the enslavement and exploitation is completely not in this narrative, as if risk has been wiped out by that magic of independence. And it oh, is absolutely. fascinating to hear that. Um, and, you know, what do we do? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I, th this is important. I'm, I'm so honored that 
I am speaking in the same language as a you know Chancellor of University of <laughs> the West Indies. That that is that's amazing, <laughs> right? But um, but it is it is so fundamental, you know. It's it's after you have seen this, you can't. It's like you can't unsee what I see now, hmm. right? You you it, it is just impossible to uh, separate the the losses that will occur continue to occur in the caribbean with how the caribbean was formed and um, and certainly with with the resources that have been extracted from it okay i i tell you i went to florence uh italy and you know just spending time in that city and and seeing the the Medici banks and how they operated and, and then seeing the, you know, the wonderful work of my namesake, you know, I, you go there, your name is David, you got to see Michelangelo's David, you know, and sort of stand <laughs> up and see, well, let me see how, you know, his arms look against mine and so on and so forth. But, you know, they, 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 the value of the David statue out of that, you know, <laughs> fragile block of marble that Michelangelo used. I, I cannot, you know, you cannot, uh, in words and pictures and anything, you cannot imagine how magnificent it is. Hmm. But having gone back there, I felt such a connection as, you know, as a, uh, as a person from an in- a lineage of enslaved Africans to say thank you to my ancestors for all the free labor that mm. went into making this bank rich. Mm. You know, and boy, I made sure and enjoyed every goddamn minute that I was at museum because it was my ancestors' sweat and blood, mm. regardless of how they want to, uh, you know, the cookie crumbles or whatever. It was a lot of the world south mm. that went into making those places nice, made to supporting those artists, to making Amsterdam and Paris and London the places that they are today, right? So it, it, this is a global problem, and it requires a global solution. You know, you you hear people saying, "Okay, it's time to close the borders." Kind of, how would these people coming into our country? Well, <laughs> <laughs> how did I my money get into your country so easily? Right. I don't hear you saying anything about shipping <laughs> that back. Right. You know, and and so that that the 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 essence of hurricanes, though, is important for us to understand it from the the global perspective, right? Mm. It is a globe that we run, hurricanes starting from that western coast of Africa and transferring to the westerly direction, recurving up as it goes north. This is the way the world breathes, really, it is. It, mm. it takes energy from the, the tropics and it dissipates it all the way up to Greenland and you know, London and everything. So what it is, if you imagine your the globe with your head, right? And the Caribbean would be somewhere just between your nostrils and your top lip. So every time you breathe out, 
there's a hurricane and you breathe in, there's another hurricane. Mm -hmm. Okay. But it worked for millennia mm -hmm. until many, many, many people decided to live there or were forced to live there. Yeah. Right? So, you know, how can you blame, uh, you know, Dominica for, oh my goodness, you're not building, building strong enough. You choose to live just below the nostril of the earth. <laughs> and it's just going to blow it because that's how it maintains its temperature and everything. Mm. Right? And, and so, you know, you, you look at these things and then you say to yourself, well, if you choose to live in the most, uh, you know, vulnerable spot, then certainly your your choice for construction, for building codes, has to commensurately increase relative to that risk. Mm -hmm. And so these are the things that we potentially can start talking about, but we really can't talk about it until we start talking about the equity of, um, you know, how much sugar cane was taken out of Dominica? Little Dominica. Mm. You know, remember the days when they historically one treaty traded Barbados for Canada? Right, right. <laughs> Think about that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. This is so great to kind of hold these ideas in tension because what I'm hearing is this appreciation that we need safer buildings in these locations. Right. And you'll see a lot of people who understand the technical problems here say, well, people sh just shouldn't live there. Like that's, and that's their decision. But the reality that you're describing for us is that many times the people who are most affected didn't have a choice. It was other people making a choice for them, right? For them. Mm. Right. And yes, so that's, yeah. that's the kind of tension we're dealing with here. And I think it's great that we can open the season like this. And so I want to talk a little bit about the, the work that we did together in 2019 after Hurricane Dorian. We wrote a piece in the conversation about reconstruction there, and we were talking about how structures um, are and why not all structures are built equally resistant to wind and locating that the problem there in development issues, including the legacy of colonialism in the Caribbean that you've been discussing. And so there's a line in that piece that we wrote um, that says, and I quote, for every inadequate building, there is a social context. And so this is, of course, relevant to not only the Bahamas, but um, the yes. broader Caribbean and, and beyond, where inappropriate long-standing design choices and limited enforcement of building codes might be easily solved on paper, but they don't really deal with social and political reality. And so... Um, I, I know you're working a lot within your profession to catalyze change. And I was hoping maybe you could tell us a bit more about your hopes and vision for how engineers and maybe other tech, more technically minded professions can operate more ethically and with social consciousness. Hmm. So if we could step back a bit from, you know, this broad community uh, look and, and feel of things, let's think of how we are trained as engineers. Mm -hmm. So as you're uh, going through your bachelor's, your master's, et cetera, et cetera, you're learning techniques um, and methodologies for designing a building, one building at a time. You know, mm -hmm. This house is six-story building, this, you know, Taipei tower or 
in, in uh, Malaysia Tower or something like that, but it's just one building. Okay. Um, we uh, another sort of the uh, branch of the, the engineering uh, community sort of works with others in the community to sort of set those basic standards for all that building that goes on. So it's it's uh, mainly a, an association to almost protect ourselves from litigation yeah. to say these are the standards that an engineer should and should not uh, follow. And once you do that, you're, you're uh, hunky-dory off to the races. Um, so we seldom have an opportunity within our training of bachelors and masters to think about what we're doing one building at a time. We can literally create the future disaster one building at a time. Right. Right? By just doing, you know, inadequate designs one building at a time. And so uh, it is important for engineers now to uh, get a, a much better understanding of what um, we ought to do. And this is now sort of reflected in the uh, revisions of our code of ethics um, that uh, the American Society of Civil Engineers has has put out. Okay. Um, prior to, I don't know, the first engineer code of ethics says something of, and I'm uh, paraphrasing that, you know, we must be the loyal servants of our clients. Right. Right. That's all. So in other words, regardless what you do, Mr. or Miss Client, once you pay us, we will, uh, you know, execute your uh, uh, design to the best of our ability. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't matter whether, you know, you have red lining where you well, you want all white suburbs in, in mm -hmm. you know, the 1940s and 50s. doesn't matter. We're just doing our job. No. Right. The, uh, that was, you know, a code from 1914 with the first uh, code of ethics. Now that has changed. We have a preamble and the first uh, um, section of the code says, first and foremost, protect the health, safety and welfare of the public. Yeah, why? This is a, yeah. a, a significantly different approach. Right. Yes, we're going to, you know, do some stuff for a majority of stuff for our clients. Yes, but we are also obligated to protect the health, safety and welfare of the public and enhancing the quality of life for humanity. Mm -hmm. Okay. These are mm -hmm. very interesting things to, to to state and to put into a code of ethics where we are obligated to to do this. Yeah. Uh, one of the clauses there says that the engineers treat all persons with respect, dignity, and fairness and reject all forms of discrimination and harassment. That was never there. Mm -hmm. Now, what I'm talking to you about was implemented in October. 
October 2020, just last year. Mm. So, you know, these things have not yet, uh, you know, got uh, adopted or, or, well, it's adopted, but it hasn't, you know, got widespread appreciation. So it's up to me as a structural engineering professor to ensure that I uh, bring these things to my students' attention. Mm. We also have one there that says we must recognize, engineers must recognize the diverse historical, social, and cultural needs of the community and incorporate these considerations in their work. How are we going to do that? Mm. How are we going to do that? You have to, certainly you have to understand the history, the, understand the social, understand the cultural before you can incorporate, okay? So that the the notion that I can in future train an engineer on the technical and how to use a fancy uh, computer programming and fancy calculators and so on without having a broader education on the history, social, and cultural needs of communities, I would have failed, Mm. right? So I think that that is where uh, things are going to start to change because we have decided as a profession that it is uh, in, important for us to do these things uh, and, and to treat the world and, and all humanity as, you know, as a collective. I'm going to kind of take you down my favorite rabbit hole now, David. <laughs> <laughs> we will talk a little bit more <laughs> about it. So, you know, as we talk about disaster risk reduction, what we see in the past two years is this motto or kind of slogan of building back better, right? Mm-hmm. And it's now been um, adopted, adapted, abused and reused uh, by anyone <laughs> who isn't lazy, basically. Um And what we also see is that in most cases, we're either emphasizing building or we are emphasizing back. Mm. And we hardly ever emphasize better. And when we emphasize better, what we emphasize is better for very few, right? Rather than for Mm. most people. So in reflecting on everything that you said, reflecting on kind of the engineering practice and the, um, the call for justice and for equity, how do we change this conversation in that how do we really build back better you know how do we how do we make better what do we as educators kind of as engineers as uh, decision makers what do we need to do to move the narrative away from these technocratic solutions of building it back um, that only really serve the privileged mm-hmm. so in that context i think for me <laughs> It's amazing. We, I think we have to understand in the 21st century that, you know, for 10,000 years, we've been building houses, buildings, roads, and there weren't any engineers. This is not rocket science. Okay. Humans <laughs> know how to build a house, a road, a bridge. We've done it. We, there is practice for it. What? 
engineers try to do is maybe give us a little bit more efficiency in terms of what materials we use. Maybe uh, try to do a longer bridge or or a less expensive house, etc., etc. But you know. It is important. The, the fundamental thing I believe is that we have chosen to live together for a reason. And that is something that we probably uh, don't or have forgotten, right? That it is for our protection. It is for our propagation as a society and a community that there are certain things that are best done by a community that individuals cannot do. Mm. The, you know, by Jason's choice to cross a pond and live in Gainesville means that I owe something to Jason's safety, health, and welfare. As he does to me, mm-hmm. I don't have to like him. I don't have to like him. We don't have to talk, but we're living within the same spot, right? And so, just mm-hmm. as Jason thinks, well, he has bought his car, and his car is his, and so on and so forth, and I'll drive my car because I have freedom. But you're driving it on the road that we all pay for. Mm-hmm. And we want roads with fewest potholes possible for the least amount of money possible. Okay? And so the, the, the notion that we want this community of Gainesville to be here, how long? Just for mm-hmm. our lifetime? Or our kids' lifetime? Or grandkids? You know, how long do we want to be here? That is a community decision that has Mm. Um, once that community decision kicks in, then how much better can be answered in terms of the building back, right? Mm. Or do we build back? Sometimes that's a question that we haven't chosen to ask. Should we build back, right? Um, and there are some places that if you choose or, or if you know that you've do not wish to spend this much money, well, then maybe your choice should be not to build back because it's not going to last or it's not going to be economically viable. Mm. But, you know, so they're hard choices. But here's the thing. The engineer must be able to have their voices heard in the public square as much as the, the attorneys and the doctors and the teachers. It is a collective community decision in terms of how structurally sound we wash our community to be. So therefore, the the idea that we can move from, uh, you know, uh, the onus of where we are today to where we want to go uh, and with a, a slogan of build back better, if we can do that only if people understand the civics of how we got here the history of why we chose to live in Gainesville, uh, the, what we know uh, now, today in the 21st century, about these hurricanes and tornadoes and what have you, how they affect us, where they pass, and so on and so forth. 
what we know today about different types of materials that can be better uh, used and deployed most efficiently to build a, a stronger house. Um, and then how can we change uh, to extend the likelihood that this house, this neighborhood, this town, mm -hmm. this community is going to survive, right? But there must be some degree of pride in that, right? We must mm -hmm. want to be able to transfer the legacy of, you know, what value we see in Gainesville, Florida to another generation and another generation. Okay, we could continue to yeah. build a throw away houses, you know, till the cows come home. Nobody's going to stop you. It's your money, right? But at, at some point, you have to decide how often should that house be damaged and how much damage should occur at every one of those occasions. These are serious choices we make to uh, decide, you know, what uh, level of disaster problem we wish to tolerate, right? Um, and and those are the things that we 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 really have to ask ourselves uh, going forward in terms of um, the build back better. Pro I'm not sure if I answered that question well, but it you know to me I I feel sometimes that my research is constrained because there is. Not a general assumption that the, the solutions that I can propose are not for me to make. I cannot impose an engineered solution of build back better. Mm. I can advocate for it. Mm. And I can put it in front of the, the society, the legislators, the politicians, the school teachers, the people and say, you have a choice, but you have to make this choice. You have made choices before by your choice not to interact with the building code or not to say what what you want or not to have a you know uh, the the mechanism for uh, us you know quantifying what the risk what the damage is uh, before. But now we can do these things. You, the population, you, the general populace, must start asking those hard questions of folks like me, the engineers, and say, dude, you, you said that that is after a hurricane, <laughs> I'm going to lose my roof. I don't want to lose my roof. What can you do? And maybe I'll say, well, if you don't want to lose your roof, I'll put the rafters closer together. I'll use a thicker plywood sheet and I'll put a, a, a thicker piece of metal to tack down your roof to the walls. But it'll cost you another ten grand. Mm. Okay, you know, mm. you choose. But you know that that first capital cost is going to be, uh, you know, amortized not over thirty years. It's probably going to be amortized over about one hundred and fifty years. Has anyone thought about that? Has any community said, "Hey, let's stop chasing the"? you know, the next hurricane in 20 years. Let's chase five hurricanes back to back to back to back to back, 20 years apart and ensure that this community lasts for 150 years. It can be done. Mm. It costs money. It costs, uh, you know, uh, 
minds coming together, but it it, it is it is it it hinges on Jason and I feeling that we are neighbors, we are in this together, and we have pooled whatever limited resources we have to make it better for us today, mm-hmm. kids tomorrow, and grandkids in the future. I love that you finished with sort of highlighting our interconnectedness and um, our responsibilities as neighbors in the places that we live. And I think that's such an important thing to finish with here and to, for all of us, I think to reflect on our professional responsibilities in that space. And sometimes that means just being a neighbor rather than coming in with a a kind of expert solution, you know, Absolutely. to impose on our neighbors rather saying, you know, what do, what do our neighbors want to achieve? Um, what are their capacities? What are their uh, knowledges, you know, and, and then using those technical abilities we have to support what our community wants to do. So I really appreciate the way that you've, you've put this, David. And, um, yeah, we just, we, we've really enjoyed this and I think our audience will appreciate the stories and the, the framing here today for our fifth season. And we really appreciate you and everything you're doing within your profession to make change. Well, thank you so much. This is um, a, a very useful thing. Hopefully, you know, I'll, I'll make sure in my um, teaching uh, next semester, it's uh, wood design and I'm certainly going to have the students introduced to uh, disaster deconstructed because it is, I, I don't know what, a, what other better way to, to introduce, you know, the grad students to the holistic look at, at, at the problem rather than um, just seeing it from our own engineering eyes. Well, thank you all for being with us today. And before you go, a few quick reminders about how you can stay connected with the podcast. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at DisastersDecon. The podcast is available on all the major platforms. Please download, share, and most importantly, subscribe. And if you haven't already done this, we really appreciate your ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts. This will help us to continue making content for you. You've been listening to Disasters Deconstructed. And don't forget, disasters are not natural. See you next time. You have been listening to Ksenia, Jason and me, David Pravat on Disasters Deconstructed Podcast.